Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. When in the world should I start Human Factors with my medical device design and development efforts? You know, that's a big question. It's a hard question. I think, well, I think we make it harder than it needs to be, quite frankly. And I think you'll find out there are some simple things that you should be doing and are relatively simple and straightforward for you to be doing to assess Human Factors needs fairly early on in a project and to help answer some of these questions on Human Factors Enjoy listening to uh, this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where I have human factors expert Mary Beth Prevatera from HS Design. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And this topic of human factors, it's uh, I'm just going to confess, folks, it's confusing to people. Uh, and and there's I don't know if there's good reasons as to why. Uh, you know, I, I think there's this uh, Yahari or Venn diagram between design controls and risk and human factors. Maybe it's just uh, a complete circle. Maybe they're all the same thing. Uh, but that, it, of course, that's debatable and it's, it makes for good conversation. And with me today, I have uh, really an expert in human factors, Mary Beth Privatera. She is principal of research in human factors at HS Design. Mary Beth, welcome. Thank you, John. I'm excited to be back and looking forward to this discussion because you're right. It is a bit of a conundrum in terms of which way do we go with human factors. Yeah. And I want to kind of explore that. And so today I thought we could talk about you know when to start human factors. But I guess before we got, get into that part of the topic, why do you think there's such a conundrum on this? Well, I think part of it is that there's uh, lots of standards and guidances out there the field of human factors in and of itself is an enormous field. It, it goes anything from the automotive industry to the aircraft industry. And, and really, it wasn't until the, the pentacle article of to air is um, human in the uh, Institute of Medicine's article back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that this became something that was really a focus area of medical devices. And, and since then, there's been lots of publications, lots of guidances that have come out recently, international guidances. And I think that there's just, it's a change of practice. Um, you're right you know, about the Venn diagram. I completely agree with you that there is a Venn diagram that says that it's integrated in here with risk and design control and quality, because at the end of the day, everyone wants to have a product that's easy to use. I don't know of any device design project I've ever been associated with in any form, be it at a university or professionally, that doesn't have ease of use um, as a requirement. The problem becomes is how do you define it? How do you measure it? Because it's not as if you can you can measure it readily. And so I think that's part of the part of the issue. Yeah, and it is it is uh I mean to me it was always just part of being a good engineer and, you know, along the way, I think you mentioned standards and some regulations here and there and so on and so forth that, that have evolved over time. And, and it seems like a lot of, a lot of times the rules, if you will, uh, formulate because uh, of things that didn't go so well or people that, you know, or, or you know, products that didn't 
didn't come up to stuff or there were some sort of adverse event or some sort of issue, which is unfortunate, of course. And, and I think we're at a point today, at least from my lens, looking at what's going on in the industry where there seems to be a convergence of these things. Again, I think the way I think they should be. But, you know, I guess from your human factors lens, looking at the world, let's talk a little bit about when to start human factors with respect to the design and development of a medical device. So I guess that's an open-ended question. When, when do you start, Mary Beth? <laughs> well, yes, great question. I'm going to say that you start immediately. I think once you have an idea of where you're going to go, of what direction you're going to head, um, and in other words, you have an idea of what type of product design, you can, you can really get into what are the attributes that are going to make this device safe and effective in the hands of real users under real conditions of use. Um, you could also state that the human factor starts even before you have an idea. Um, the contextual inquiry process does help in generating ideas. And if you look at Stanford's biodesign program, they are looking at needs finding and identifying what those are. And, and a user need is human factors. I mean, you're talking to a human, they have a need. So user need is human factors. So that's why I say you should start it off immediately. I, I think once you have an idea though, that's where you really can take a look at, when I just take the definition of in the hands of real users, you can get into the, who are your users? What are their attributes in terms of their education, their capabilities, their physical capabilities, their mental capacities, um, and, and how is this life of the device going to be used? And that gets into the, what are the real conditions of use? Are they going to be using it in their car, at home, at work? Is it in the hospital? Is it something that's going to require a lot of training? Or is it something that is decision-making decided to be used by a physician, but really used by a tech. And those are where I think things get lost in the muddle and it becomes very, very confusing for people to implement their human factors. Yeah. When you say immediately, I think, um, well, I guess I don't know what the, uh, the perceptions of our listeners are. I can tell you my perception is it's probably the wrong perception, so you can uh, level set and, and correct my my line of thinking on this. But when you say immediately, I'm like, you know, I I I, I, um, I scream a little on the inside, like, oh my goodness, that seems so painful. Why would I start formal human factors activities immediately just because I have a design? And and I I think you know just to elaborate a little bit of what's going on in my head. Um, a dangerous place at times, I know, but what I'm thinking is like, oh, do I have to like formalize a plan and, and start to to document all these things immediately? I mean, that, that seems too soon to do that, but I don't think that's what you're suggesting when you say start human factors immediately, right? Well, I'm happy that you're afraid of that. That scares you that you're thinking, oh my God, it's going to be some burden of staff. That's just, that's just funny um, because you're actually doing it anyway. I think that's, and I think that's part of the confusion is that, again, you've got user need in that first block on the, on design control. Well, your user need is the human factors need. That's what they need from uh, from the performance of the device to do. And so it's just a matter of elaborating that and to have empathy for that user. So it's something that 
I think, and I think that's part of the issue is that because it's not been integrated in our everyday life in terms of that's just something that you do. Like, for example, would you consider sending out a drawing that didn't have tolerancing to a manufacturer? No. Well, did you consider that a user was going to use the device and that they're going to like it or not like it? Well, we did. We want them to like it because that improves our market share. So that that those are the essences where I can bring in, you know, yes, they like it. That's a human factor. That's a that's an opinion. Opinion is part of, the, you know, their needs. Does it meet my need? Do I enjoy doing it? You're kind of already doing it anyways, although you don't know it. So and and then in regards to the do you need a for a formal strategy, how often is it that we do a formal strategy of something and it works out exactly how as we planned? No, I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> I don't know the so no, that's a good point. <laughs> and um I think that's that's a good point of emphasis. This is maybe where that, that Venn diagram overlaps a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I like that that idea. You're right. I'm ca- I should be capturing user needs. Now, I, I think the the thing that I've observed a lot from companies is that eh, maybe they're not doing as good a job of capturing user needs uh, toward the beginning of a project. And, and maybe that's where we can um, tighten up our practices a little bit. You know, there is that that need. I mean, it, I think about it, folks, downstream, you're going to be demonstrating that your product meets the needs of the end user. And, and how can you possibly do that if you didn't define what those user needs are uh, yeah. somewhere in that project, right? Yeah, it gets down to, um, you know, I think there is overlap. You know, it's, IT human factors is this wonderful overlap between what does your marketing department need in order to promote sales? What does your you know, what do your engineers need to demonstrate clinical efficacy? And then, you know, an FDA is just saying, well, show it to me. You know, show me that you've uh, reduced your risk and one of the risks being youth error. So how can I, you know, how can I demonstrate that? And, and oftentimes I find yeah. while we're doing human factor studies, the marketing department might be shoulder burning saying, well, how can I develop my story around this that demonstrates that this is going, that this really truly is, you know, the best thing since sliced bread or, you know, that it really is easy to use. Yeah. Okay. So, so capture user needs. Is there, um, I know there's a little bit of art to all of this, uh, you know, certainly some science and, and some technical ability, but there's, there is a fair amount of art. And so I, I guess curious, what advice do you have uh, to those listening uh, to capture uh, user needs in a way that that's meaningful. Do you have any tips or pointers on that topic? Yes, I think the art gets down to the questions and how you phrase the questions to your users and how you get the information and document the information. So oftentimes what I hear is that they've led the user to an answer. And whenever we're leading the user to an answer and we're asking loaded questions, we really aren't letting the user be the user. Or the dance technology is so cool that the user we're talking to is just in love with it and they're contorting their body and they're really working hard to, you know, to, to use the device and they're excited by it. So they don't say anything bad because inherently we always want to please, uh, you know, or people pleasers. I think, uh, you know, fundamentally people are good and they want to make another person happy. So they don't really give you a fair evaluation. So, the arts definitely in how you ask the question, um, asking the open-ended questions and getting into the five whys. And there's a lot of theories around 
how do you phrase open-ended questions to get to the root cause of, a, of an issue that they may be happening, understanding what's currently going on, um, what are behavioral issues that are currently going on? So if I, if I just take an analogy, a simple analogy of redesigning a car, let's say, we know that the brake pedal is on one side and the gas pedal is on the right, brake is on the left. If we make a fundamental shift, well, then behaviorally, we're going to have an issue and we're going to have adverse events. We're going to have some accidents. So if we look for that in the medical world and say, what are these users really doing and what do they love to do that are behavioral and just second nature? Take those into consideration. And that's where it gets to the know your user, know your use environment, because we take those into consideration and implement them into our product design of things either to include or avoid, then we're really taking into consideration um, some of their own art, what they like to do. I think that one thing to pay attention to um, that often be a, maybe a point of confusion is the definition of use error versus user error. Um, use error is clearly defined in the FDA guidance. And there's a fundamental shift that I think has happened with that nomenclature. And that is user error produces blame on the user. But use error means that it's designed in a way that the adverse event might have been predictable, that it was preventable, that, that it's not the user at fault, but the manufacturer might be responsible for the designing and the labeling of the device in a way that promoted the error, that was inadequate in design. And I think that's where you get the scare factor of, oh my goodness, this is, you know, this is a problem. So it really gets down into when you're generating a design, can you just sit back and think about and have empathy about what that user experience is going to be? And try to make it the best it can be and turn it, turn, flip that on its head and say, how do I make it better and improve it rather than try to avoid the bad? Because if I try to make it the best, I'll inherently avoid the bad. Yeah, that's a good tip. And I, and I think the other thing I want to explore with you a little bit on this topic is I'm asked or, or have conversations often where I think there is this gross misinterpretation that if I am developing a medical device that I have to engage in a waterfall or, or serial uh, product development process you know, where I do step one and, and complete all of step one before I do step two and then all of step two before I do step three, uh, you know, the, I guess the debate that I am sometimes in, in the middle of is, you know, FDA regulatory bodies, they, they resist the notion of sort of waterfall or agile type methodologies when it comes to product development. What do you have to say about that? I mean, especially on this topic of user needs, I mean, do I have to do them all at the beginning? What do I, you know, what if I'm a little bit later in my project, do I have an opportunity to go back and revisit that? Or, you know, what about waterfall versus agile when it comes to human factors? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the funny thing is if I take a look at the graphic design of the waterfall diagram and based on what I can historically reference and, you know, keep in mind that I have academic tendencies to begin with, I found out that that, that was designed in the 1970s. And the interesting thing about that is it has the boxes and then it has all the arrows and the arrows go to review. And then it has, you know, kind of makes that, that, 
circle as it comes back. And, and I think the focus of the people that look at that process, the waterfall process that this box has to be done before I move on to the next box, aren't paying attention to the arrows because it says review. And that might mean yeah. to go back. And that might mean to go back to it and make this cyclical thing. So if I change the emphasis, not so much as to finishing the box and I look at, at bringing it back in there, then I get into a much more iterative process. So I think it, it's unrealistic to think that you're going to finish one box and then jump to another box. What I've encountered is that they are kind of getting into the end and then saying, oh, crap, I, I need to do human factors. And I, and, I get, and I haven't really considered it. I haven't really documented it. And they want to do that final test just to meet agency needs rather than looking at it as a fundamental customer need. Because at the end of the day, your customers want a device that's easy to use. That's human factors. So why not put that in at the beginning instead of waiting to the end to meet a regulatory mark? So I think, you know, it has to be an iterative process to get to that point because there's only one way to get, um, you know, to really get strong design, strong human factors, strong everything, strong quality to assure that I've taken into account my users and their use environment. And that is to just have iterative tests and iterative assessments. Yeah. So it isn't a checkbox. It definitely is not a checkbox exercise. Yeah, for sure. So, all right. So we talked a little bit about when to start and sort of how to capture that information. So now that that's a little bit clearer from a human factors perspective, what happens next? I mean, once I've captured those user needs, what are the next things that I should be thinking about and when should I be thinking about them with respect to human factors and the bigger picture of trying to get this product you know, to the market eventually? Yeah, sure. So I think you need to capture your user needs. You have an idea and now you're ready to sit down and design. And design, you know, the risk documents are very clear. Design is your first go-to if you're going to mitigate risk, right? We improve by design. And and the user interface then is, is defined by the FDA as everything that w would be provided to the user. So it's the device, the labeling, the IFU, the packaging, all of that is considered the user interface. So how often is it that we are just going to look at design standards that have been published and incorporating that into, into our product design? So for example, the easiest way for me to, to approach this would be giving a hand tool example. Well, there's standards on hand tool design that have been around for eons. They've, they're published, they're well-validated. Um, even our alarm standards, there's new alarm standards that are coming out that have validated sounds that are melodic, that have been tested. What does this sound mean when you hear it? What is this icon? We have standard icons that we know what they mean. So using those industry standards, Amy AT75 is the only design standard that's out there. So start with what you already know. So you can take a product design, say if it's a hand tool, I can go to the hand tool chapter and I literally can get a framework for what my hand tool might be. What are the controls and how those controls might be laid out. And I can even get down to more specifics to say, well, if I'm going to put a push button on here, then this push button has to be within this reach and have this maximum force, this minimum force. Now I have some design specs that I can go with that I have some confidence in that I don't actually really need to test because I've pulled it from the literature. And then using my user reviews to look at sort of the gestalt, the whole, the whole product design, the whole experience of 
does it clinically meet access points? Am I in a comfortable body position? Am I not asking them too much? And this also gets true with software user interface designs in that I can look at design standards of grouping things together and aesthetic order and icons. Um, so there's a lot of standards that I think once you get into the actual design of the device that people just are either unaware of or they don't know how to use them, that they should use them because it'll expedite their design. So that would be the next step once I know where I'm going to, to implement in, into a product design. All right, that's terrific. And folks, you know, I'm very much a design control nerd uh, and everything that if you've ever read or heard me talk about design controls, everything that Mary Beth is saying should sound very familiar. And and I think that's uh, on purpose, right? Because, um, you know, as much as one is through the lens of, of from a design control perspective and the other concept is through the lens of human factors, these things are so intertwined, as I said at the beginning, Maybe these are the same thing, you know, because it's really important that that you understand what that user needs and then structure your design and development in a way that that I mean, really ostensibly what you're trying to do is address two questions. Did I design the product correctly and did I design the product or the correct product? You know, that's really the essence of what verification and validation are all about. And, And human factors fits right into that whole paradigm. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and like you, John, you may call yourself a design control nerd. I have to admit I'm a design and human factors nerd as well. I think that's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you and I, um, even today, like we just decided, you know, we, we knew roughly what we wanted to talk about, but, you know, it's like, hey, let's just... Let's just hit record and let's just talk. So, um, you know, you've been you've been doing this for a few days. I, I won't give any indication of your age away. I'm not trying to do that. But, um, <laughs> but I guess tell us, share some stories where you know, or maybe an ideal way that this should happen based on your experiences. And if you know, sharing a tidbit here or there of wow, this was really done really well, or wow, this was done really poorly. Talk about some of the, the, the pros and cons of, of having a good, solid human factors program. Sure. Well, I think one of the, the pros of a solid human factors program is that that comment when you get to risk of that which is foreseeable, and that which is foreseeable is a great line. If you think about it, and you think about raising a kid, right? You don't foresee all of the issues that our children are going to come up with. We can kind of come up with a few, and our users are the same way. So if we take a look at our medical device like it's our baby, and we're looking for that which is foreseeable on, on what potentially could go wrong and how the user might use it, we, we, can't, we can't foresee all of them. So getting the user to do it for us is actually so much more helpful because they have such rich information and, oh, no, I would never do it this way. Oh, I would definitely do it this way. So, you know, that, that's, that's the type of information that a solid human factors program can, can get you. Um, I think there's some um, interesting, shocking things that I've seen over the years in terms of device use where out in the real world, real world experiences, I think those are um, always fair to play, and those are far more shocking than than I, I want to I want to realize. So, for example, in doing contextual inquiry studies where you're immersing yourself in the clinical environment, you're always going to see things that you wish you didn't see. You wish that weren't that that 
that they condition. So for example, maybe they're just breaking a little rule and maybe that little rule might be that they're off protocol or doing something that they may not be instructed to do. So for example, we are studying Foley catheters and how they dispense the Foley catheters and um, the ICU nurse then put it, um, they didn't do it in a graduated cylinder, they just put it into the toilet to drain which is, which is not, it's not going to cause anyone any harm, but it is not their protocol. And if you think about, and this is just a simple example, if you think about why they're doing what they're doing, well, they want to get on to the next task. They don't want to sit there and let that drain in, in an appropriate manner. And, and the, the reality is, is that getting in and watching cases is a gift. Um, and you're all, you always learn from those experiences and you walk away with heartfelt emotion for both the patient and the provider because uh, the provider wakes up every day and tries to do their best at their job. And sometimes it's impossible for them to do the best they possibly can do because of the situations that we've created and as device designers. Um, you can see things that happen also in the field where if there's multiple devices used in a system, each device is independently validated and independently approved. And when it gets to become a complex system, so if you go into the OR, the cath lab, and you look at these complex systems, you'll quickly realize that there's technical sales reps that are running around that are providing technical support. And the rules for those technical supports, why are they there? Well, they're there to make sure that the device and the equipment are run properly. Well, that might ne be necessary but if you think about it, if I can empower the users to do things on their own, I'm in a much better situation and I've got one less person that's involved in that particular care conundrum or that particular care situation where I don't have to rely on them actually being there. If it's an emergency situation, can they be there? So those are some of the issues that can happen when you're in the field. Then there's the rote usability when you have a usability test, what can happen during a usability test that you just get surprises. So that's why I say try to start it immediately and do it often so you can get those surprises out of the way and you can, divide, you can design for them so that the device and the design in and of itself accommodates for those situations that might come up that you've had no opportunity of foreseeing. Yeah, that's really important. Mary Beth, I, I have to imagine that... Um... I guess pop quiz here. So does every device require, <laughs> I think last time I did Mythbusters with you. So the thought just occurred pop to me, good. pop quiz. So does every medical device require human factors? Well, there's a lot of legacy devices out there that didn't have any human factors. Uh, and they are in a situation where they have to be revalidated and you have to search your mod databases and validate that they are in fact doing what they were supposed to do and in, intended and why there there's no the residual risk isn't a safe factor so the short answer is yes I, I believe that it does however if you've had a device that's been on the market for a while it's approved and you're changing something in the internal mechanism you're changing the board the, the computer board that runs it and there's no change to the device user interface then then technically you don't need to do um and a human factors update because you're already approved and, and you're not changing that, that basic user interface. I think increasingly regulatory agencies are asking for it. And what their focus again is on risk. And that is also another area of contention and area of confusion because 
in your risk analysis, you'll delineate whether or not it's an essential task or it's a critical task. Critical tasks get to those that, that relate to harm. Um, and that's the data that, that the agencies are really looking in, looking for. They want to know on those critical tasks that someone can get injured on, did we take into consideration and have we reduced the risk to a reasonable level? So I think that's, you know, short answer, yes. Long answer, maybe, maybe not. Um, and that doesn't necessarily sit well in terms of how do you know what to do. Okay, so that's that's for um, things that might have already been on the market. What about if I'm in development and let's just say, you know, uh, at a stage where I'm preparing for a regulatory submission like a 510K, I guess pop quiz question number two, do I have to address human factors as part of my regulatory submission? Yes, you do. IEC 62366 is going to expect that it be in your file. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to submit it to uh, to the agency directly. So if it's got non-significant risk, so you, let's just say that you have a device that was labeled, you, you went through and you even did a clinical trial. And during that clinical trial, because the device used, you went through IRB protocols and it was uh, listed as a non-significant risk device. Um, you still need to have something in your file that you've addressed it. Um, I would recommend that you have a pre-sub meeting with FDA if you're seeking FDA clearance that assures that you're that you are addressing all of their questions um, in your file in case you're audited. Um, if it is something that has significant risk, then absolutely, it's it's without a doubt. Um, if it is something significant with significant risk, and you have several critical tasks that are going to result in harm then absolutely you need it. Uh, and that needs to be a separate filing, dossier filing, filing the, following the FDA human factors guidance, and they're very clear on it. What's also interesting to note on that is there's a little bit of a difference between CDRH and CDRS definition of harm um, and a little bit of difference. They've got some comparative threshold analysis that happens on the human factors with CDR. So that guidance just came out last September. There's a little bit of difference between devices and drugs and combination products that need that people need to pay attention to. Um, but if it's a new product, then absolutely. All right. So any other thoughts on the topic of human factors? When to start, what to do, how to, to, to document your file before we wrap up this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast? I think don't be afraid of it. If you want to do it anyways, it's a fundamental customer requirement, and it'll only make your marketing and sales team quite happy when you have this very beautiful, lovely device that works as intended and is a fantastic experience for the user. So don't be afraid. Well, and, and I'm going to add to, to what Mary Beth just, just shared. Yes, your sales and marketing team will appreciate this at the end, and uh you might be met with resistance uh, toward the beginning middle when you start to suggest these things. So, so stay the course. It is the right thing to do. You know, remember that you're developing products to improve the quality of life. And so understanding how humans interact with your product, because 
uh, you know, unless you're developing a purely AI thing, and even purely AI things uh, have probably human intervention, realize that humans will be using your product in some way, shape, or form. So <laughs> this is an important topic. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're spot on. It's human design for humans. <laughs> exactly. All right. I want to thank Mary Beth Prefetera. Again, Mary Beth is Principal of Research and Human Factors with HS Design. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, anything human factors related, I mean, she writes books on this topic, folks. Uh, she She's a great resource to connect with. Uh, pretty easy to, to find her on LinkedIn. You can go to HS Design, hs-design.com to learn more about what they do as well. Uh, just uh, as we wrap up uh, this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I just want to let you know, did you know that Greenlight Guru is going on the road this year. That's right, folks. We have the True Quality Roadshow, and we are going to be hitting a number of cities across the United States throughout 2019. So, you know, first stop is Atlanta. Uh, next stop is in Boston. And then, you know, we're going to be hitting places like Minneapolis and Orange County and a few other places throughout the, the states uh, throughout the entire year. So be sure to check out the True Quality Roadshow. We'd love to meet you. Uh, there'd be an opportunity to sign up for these events when we're in uh, a neighborhood near you. So do check that out. And of course, as you are going through human factors, design and development, risk, all of these things are important to define and document. And, and don't do it because you have to. Do it because you believe in this, because you understand the importance of these activities in building and designing safer, more effective medical devices. I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru, learn all about the Greenlight Guru eQMS software platform that is designed specifically for medical device professionals by actual medical device experts. And yes, they work here at Greenlight. It's terrific. So check that out. We've got workflows to help you better manage design controls, better manage risk and documents and, and all those post-market activities like CAPAs and complaints as well. And it's all in one single source of truth. So check that out. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight, Guru John Spear. <laughs>